Hello and welcome to Money Beat Week. This is Eric Holm. I'm here with Mike Casey, Maureen Farrell, and Liam Denning in San Francisco. This week we're talking about what else? Oil. After this. Cloud may be just another overused buzzword, but the cloud is an effective computing environment that can save your business time and money. Barracuda Networks is no stranger to the cloud. In fact, all of our security and storage solutions connect to the cloud for continuous updates and off-site redundancy. Barracuda's cloud also plays host to our email security, web security, file sharing, and e-signing services. We even offer solutions on Amazon's AWS and Microsoft's Azure public cloud platforms. To try any of our cloud-connected solutions free, visit barracuda.com slash cloud. So, guys, in June, oil was over $100 a barrel, and as of today, it's flirting with $58 on the U.S. benchmark there. This is a crazy, crazy run. And, Liam, why don't you tell us what's been happening? Just fill us in. I think it's a couple of things going on. You know, you won't be surprised to learn that those two things are supply and demand. (laughs) Um, So, on the supply side, we've obviously seen a huge run-up in uh, U.S. oil production on the back of the shale boom. Um, we've seen Libya, despite the fact that the country is still very politically fractious, um, get back to some modicum of oil output. And then we've seen um, Saudi Arabia, um, uh, you know, people talk about OPEC, but what we're really talking about is Saudi Arabia and a few Gulf uh, states, um, essentially saying um, we're not prepared to cede market share um, to uh, these rival sources. Um, And then on the demand side, a couple of things going on. One is obviously China um, not growing as fast as it was. Um, People revising down their forecasts for Chinese oil demand growth. Um, And then another thing which has actually been kind of creeping into the market um, kind of since the beginning of uh, this century, which is as we've seen uh, demand growth for oil shift away from the developed world to developing markets, in some ways what we're seeing is oil demand resting on oil prices. So a good example was today when the International Energy Agency put out its uh, latest forecast for 2015. It cut its growth forecast by 210,000 barrels a day. Virtually all of that was to do with Russia. They've revised down their forecast for growth in Russia, which is predicted to head into a recession tomorrow, um, next year. Um, and that's largely because oil prices are coming down. So in some ways, you're starting to see a, a negative kind of feedback loop. Uh, oil prices go down. Um, demand in commodity-dependent countries goes down, which in turn hits the oil price, which in turn hits demand in those countries. So yeah. that's kind of what's going on. And maybe we can hit that a little bit harder, too, on the supply side, because, Mike Casey, you've been writing about this a little bit in your morning emails. Um, China is a, another place where um, signals aren't good, right? Right, but they, I think that's probably more the d- demand side of things. Sorry, that's uh, what I meant, um, demand side. <laughs> but, um, I'm on but, a roll today. But, but, but absolutely. I mean, it, it's, I think, to me, because it moves beyond oil here, and we've, we've seen how other markets are responding. I mean, you get all these uh, top-level economists come out and do their linear analysis and conclude that anything like a move like this is inherently good for the global economy. And I think on, on paper that's got to be the case, right, because it's a, it's a um, non-discretionary spending item that is now markedly cheap. But, but the fact is, such a big move like this has two, two components to it that I think we need to focus on. One is the signaling impact of its own right, because it's telling us how, uh, how kind of 
over-built uh, out a place like China was in terms of capacity and its, its demand for commodities and therefore how overextended uh, producers, not just in the oil sector, but across the board, in, in particularly in, in other commodities uh, producing countries uh, and, and companies, had, had gone over the top. I mean, I think of Australia's iron ore producers, for example, and the amount of investment that they were pouring into to iron ore uh, projects in the northwest of Australia, way ahead of schedule and really not thinking about how this whole thing could fall apart. So oil is a signal to me uh, of the weakness of that broad base of demand from China and, and elsewhere uh, f- for the whole commodity spectrum. Um, but on top of that, the speed of the move has financial implications. Um, and we've seen junk bonds now, this very rapid outflow of money from junk bonds. People concerned about you know, exposures within that market, to obviously to oil producers, but to, to, to companies that are then connected to that. This is so such a big move. You know, you start to see the risk of defaults. That raises concerns for investors in commodities. It raises concerns for certain hedge funds. You know, you can start to have a financial threat here, and I think that's one of the reasons why we're seeing such volatility in stocks and others connected with with oil. It's not just a good news economic story. Sure, and I would add also that our colleague Paul Vigna mentioned uh, the exposure that insurers have, for example, uh, absolutely to uh, fixed in their fixed income portfolios, which of course are massive. Um, that was in his morning email. And Maureen, you um, had some numbers this week in a post about uh, junk bonds. Exactly. I did. It's interesting. I mean, this was earlier this week, JP Morgan or last week had said that um, junk, you know, about 18 percent of the whole high yield market is made up of um, energy investments. And they said below sub $65 a barrel, about 40 percent. Um, if it stayed there for a few years, of all junk bonds could def- of all energy based junk bonds could default. So now we're far below that price. I mean, now we're sub sixty. So the pain just keeps on getting worse and worse. And Mike, I think you may just make a good point too. I mean, just the ripple effect within the high yield world and how that spills. I mean, you look at our money and investing page, and we're seeing the front page of the money and investing section. We see the um, ripple effects there. But you know, the junk bonds, and I mean, we just even within the U.S., I saw. Um, there was one stat that said just 1% of the U.S. Uh, output is made up of energy investments versus 70% hitting the com- consumers. But when you look at what's happened in, like, North Dakota and Texas, like, even the ripple effect on the consumers, like, this has been the backbone of a lot of economies. And then we see when we see cuts there, I mean, I think we can, we're only beginning to start to see how this is going to affect uh, consumers. I mean, we've seen the good the tax cut, as some people call it, as far as gas prices. But um, I think we're only beginning to get a sense of the negatives. Hmm. Liam, how long does it take for the fall in the uh, price of oil per barrel to, to reach us at the pump? To reach the pump? Yeah. Um, well, I think we're already seeing it. I mean, in general, um, it tends to work asymmetrically. So when oil prices rise, that tends to transmit to the pump pretty quickly, um, but then uh, it takes a little longer for it to, to come you, back the other way, which works, is what yeah. you might expect. You know, yeah. I mean, uh, the, 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 the gasoline retailing business is such a low margin business. They try to hold on to those margins as long mm-hmm. as possible. Um, I mean, what's interesting on the demand, on the supply side as well, is, is how quickly it will take, uh, how long it will take those lower oil prices to actually curtail 
uh, supply growth mm. in the U.S. Right. Um, it's, it, you can't just turn on a dime here, right? No. And in fact, you know, there's, there's quite a, a high incentive not to, obviously, um, because the exploration and production sector is essentially a growth sector. You know, investors in EMP companies, you know, for years have not really cared that EMP companies habitually outspend their cash flow. Uh, and that was largely on the assumption that with oil, you know, in triple digits and likely to stay that way or so many people thought, um, the key thing was to grab as much land as possible so that you had as much reserves to tap as you could um, and just keep drilling and drilling to grow production. Um, now, so from the EMP sector's perspective, they're going to try and keep that going as long as possible. They have some help in that regard. You know, many producers will have hedged their production next year, so locked in higher prices than are currently in the market. So that protects them to some extent. Um, on the high yield um, debt market, one thing to bear in mind is that, yes, there is a problem there, but a lot of these maturities don't really kick in um, uh, for about another three years or so. Um, so there is some protection on that side as well. And the EMP companies will also squeeze their suppliers, namely the oil field services companies. I mean, that's a key reason why uh, Halliburton and Baker Hughes are trying to pull off what is likely to be a very difficult merger um, because they are going to try and offset some of that pressure that's going to be coming from EMP companies for them to uh, cut the fees that they charge. Liam, I, I imagine just though as it takes a long time for this that extra supply to come offline, once it is off and if prices start to rise eventually, which I imagine is what Saudi's gambit is here, uh, mm -hmm. then it also takes a long time for that to come back on, right? And so, and I wonder if you could talk to what you think Saudi Arabia is up to in this regard, because clearly it's up to them. I mean, they, they, they could turn this thing off. They could, they could solve this problem fairly easily, right? Um, I mean, that, that, they have that marginal extra barrel to play with. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, it seems to me that in addition to obviously making a, a, a bet on their uh, these new competitors and wanting to squeeze them out, there's got to be a geopolitical element to this given uh, the history of, of Saudi Arabia's relationship with the US and, and, and all the other players in the region. Is there a way in which they could be brought on? You know, is, is there some sort of influence that the US could bring to bear in this? Um, you know, what, what's going on, I suppose, generally in... Well, in, uh, in I think Saudi Arabia's thinking is driven by a few factors. Um, I mean, Saudi Arabia is, is very different from most of the other countries that are in OPEC in that it, it, is, it isn't just running its production just to keep things ticking over in the way that, for example, a country like Venezuela is. Venezuela has to keep pumping oil no matter what the price um, just to fund itself. Saudi Arabia it has a little firmer footing because it's put away um, quite a lot of reserves to help ride out um, inevitable down cycles in the oil price. I think they're looking at a couple of things. One is the triple-digit oil prices that we've kind of gotten used to over the last decade or so, while they are, you know, fabulous in terms of the cash flows they produce, they're actually not great for the future of the 
oil industry. And I think Saudi Arabia recognizes that. When you have triple-digit oil, you know, a couple of things happen. One is you encourage um, competing supply. And, you know, Saudi Arabia has lived in denial for years but has finally come around to the idea that the triple-digit oil prices that we've seen effectively kicked off the shale boom and has created a long-term problem, competitive problem for Saudi Arabia. The other thing you do is you encourage people to go out and come up with conservation technology. Right. You know, in some ways, the rise of Tesla is directly linked to the failure of OPEC to rein in oil prices over much of the last decade. And so Saudi Arabia is not only looking to the cash flows mm. that it's making today, it's trying to preserve the value of all the oil it still has in the ground, because that's essentially what that country rests on mm. um, in more ways than one. I think there is also a geopolitical angle. And in some ways, you know, although with these lower oil prices, Saudi is testing the resilience of U.S. shale, in some ways U.S. shale is, is kind of a bad um, target to pick on because, yes, you can drive some companies out of business, you can force people to rein back production, but the timeline on a shale well is actually fairly small, mm. you know, because the U.S. still has all that infrastructure. It's not like all the pipelines and oil field services are going to go away. In order for that to happen, you'd need to have a sustained downturn in prices like we had in the 80s and 90s, and Saudi definitely doesn't want that. Mm. In some ways, I think what they're really driving at is they want to teach a lesson to the Russians, who are not only a competing supplier, but are also a political adversary in Syria. They also want to uh, uh, put pressure on Iran, which is Saudi Arabia's main geopolitical rival. And I think what they really want to also hurt on the economic side are those kind of oil projects that require a lot of upfront spending, but once you do it, can run at pretty minimal prices. And those aren't shale projects. They're more things like um, uh, oil sands in Canada, uh, deep water projects in rising um, oil powers like Brazil, even things like LNG in Australia. Because once, once you've done all the upfront spending, you can run those things at a fairly minimal cost. But if you introduce oil price volatility or drive the price, price down, it's a lot harder for those operators to actually invest in new capacity because suddenly you throw their financial models into disarray because they have no idea what kind of price they're going to get in you know five or six years when these projects actually start to produce. So where do you guys think we're, we're going from here? Um, how long does this last, and wh where's the bottom? Liam, you, you offered a theory in your uh, th this week. Yeah, I, I mean, I think in the first quarter, you're going to really see the bottom fall out of the oil market. And the reason being... It hasn't fallen out already? <laughs> well, no, I mean, it certainly hasn't bottomed out yet because we're only just starting to see the signs that inventories of oil are rising. There was some evidence of that in U.S. inventory data that came out earlier this week. There was some data in today's IEA uh, report that inventories are rising. And that's really what, um, you know, if, if Saudi Arabia's aim is to kind of flush out high-cost 
competitors and bring some balance back to this market. That's how they'll do it. They cut the price. They encourage refiners to keep refining oil because they basically help them lock in a margin. That oil can't find enough buyers because demand growth is slowing. And so it heads into storage tanks. And we're seeing that happening. Once those storage tanks rise to a level where people actually wonder where they're going to actually store the oil, uh, you know, to the point where you have oil being stored on ships at sea, um, that's when the bottom really falls out of the market because suddenly everyone becomes aware that there is more than enough oil to go around. I think we could see WTI definitely hit 50, may even go below 50, because when you get a panic like this, prices do tend to overshoot in the same way they tend to overshoot in a mania on the upside. Um, my feeling is it's actually going to take quite a while for this to uh, work itself out for the reasons that I was saying earlier around the incentive for EMP companies to just keep producing and the incentive indeed for, com- for countries like Russia and Venezuela to keep producing just to keep their cash flows going. Um, I don't think we're going to see triple-digit oil next year. I actually don't know if we're going to see triple-digit oil for several years to come, bar- barring some kind of geopolitical shock. And uh, I think when we started, I, I had written down that we were getting close to 58, and uh, CNBC just threw up 57.70 a few minutes ago here uh, as we're recording in uh, early afternoon on Friday. So it's uh, it's still going down. But, uh, you know, Maureen, where do you think we're headed with this? I think I think Liam brings up all good points. I mean, it seems like just at least in the very near term, it could go. There's just a, a lot of room down. It seems like it could just somewhat feed on itself. I heard um, Steve Schwartz, Schwartzman of Blackstone speaking at a conference yesterday, and his thought was that it could go up, it could go down, it's going to go all over the place. But he's a buyer at these levels of buyer companies of, of with oil stocks. Uh, not of oil stocks, actually, with his in, energy investment fund. He thinks Got that. It. All, there are so many companies are in trouble. He's happy. He has a $4 billion fund and is going to jump into the market right now. You know, we, we sort of glossed over it, and, and I think we talked about the negatives, but there will be huge implications for the consumer here as well. I mean, it, people are just starting to notice, I think, that gas is coming down. They have more money. In their, I, I was getting getting my hair cut yesterday. Neither of you, by the way, who are in this room mentioned my excellent haircut. <laughs> but the... The, I think the, it's great. Thank you. <laughs> the the barber was 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 talking about the, you know the people in the barber shop were talking about the price of oil and when was the last time that happened in a good way? It's it's been a very long time. So I think you know in addition to seeing how this shakes out for economies and and for the geopolitical situation, there is going to be an upside. I think, the way, many to, US consumers, yeah, I think the way to think about things. this, though, is a transfer of, of wealth and, and prosperity or well-being, whatever you want to call it, away from producers to the consumers, which one can assume is a good thing, right? If consumers are a broader group of people than, than the producers, and that's, that's what's, what's really happening here. Uh, on, on the other hand, as I said before, I mean, the speed of the decline is the concern. And so I, I, I'm, I'm totally going to defer to, to, to Liam in, in terms of any projections on where oil goes from here. But, but I think the things we need to be thinking about now are the prospect of defaults uh, and 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 how quickly they might come into and how and what impact that is. I think the bottom line is if at the same time that the Fed, from what we can tell, is on a march toward higher rates, uh, albeit gingerly and carefully. The, the combination of the volatility introduced by the disruption of the world's most important commodity 
and the Fed on a tightening path, uh, it just bodes for more volatility in markets generally. I think that's the bottom line. Yeah, I, um, I, I yeah. think that's right. So, so we've got that. Consumers are going to win in some way, and that's a nice buffer. But, um, but, but as an as an investor, I think people need to be, you know, I hate to use the cliche, but they sort of buckle up right now because it's going to uh, it's it's going to get a little little choppy. Because this will complicate things for central banks, because on the one hand, it does offer that stimulus, as Michael was saying. The difficulty it introduces is that of all the and this. You know, going back to your barbershop story there, Eric, um, <laughs> of all the prices that Americans in particular focus mm-hmm. on, yeah. you know, so. gasoline is the one that's in their face all the time. You mm-hmm. know, as they're driving to work, as they're doing whatever on the road, it's the one price that they see flashing up in front of their eyes all the time. Um, and I think one thing central bankers will be worried about is that even as this kind of stimulus effect happens, this is going to really drag down inflation, and we're already in such a low inflation world. Um, I think they will be wary of any sign that this could lead towards a quote-unquote you know, deflationary mindset on the part of consumers. I mean, we're at that kind of zero-bound point where markets – where inflation psychology is going to be playing on central bankers' minds. So in terms of market volatility, the key question for me on all this in 2015 is actually what this does to the Fed's thinking. Mm. Because do Mm -hmm. they focus on the problems of very low inflation and think, okay, we don't want to raise rates too soon? Or do they say, this is such a stimulus for consumers that we need to raise rates? And I think that's going to be a key question to, yeah. to answer, certainly throughout the first half of next year. It's a key question. It's a fascinating question. There's so many great things to think about with this whole thing, and we sort of just brushed up against it there, but we're going to have to call it there. Thank you all for joining us. This has been Eric Holm for Money Beat Week with Mike Casey, Maureen Farrell, and Liam Denning in San Francisco. You've been listening to the Money Beat Podcast. Stay connected to the Wall Street Journal Radio Network by following us on Twitter at WSJ Radio. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com.